The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Sebastian Budgeon to discuss the Yellow Vest protest movement in France, the heavy-handed reaction of the French government and the increasing unpopularity of Emmanuel Macron. As usual, you can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you really like the show, please think about supporting it via Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll gain access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Sebastian Budgeon is a senior editor at Verso Books, and he's also on the editorial board of Historical Materialism. So the Gilets Jaunes, or the Yellow Vest movement, emerged in France in mid-November in, a, in apparent response to high fuel prices, in part due to a carbon tax, and the high cost of living amongst people living in rural areas and small towns. Could you say something about the emergence of the protest movement, what seems to be its regional, ethnic and class composition, what provoked the protests and d- did they develop in as spontaneous a way as it appears? Yes, so uh, the movement genuinely um, did emerge as a self-organised spontaneous movement. And I mean that in the real sense of the word. I mean, as we know, lots of social movements are described as spontaneous, uh, whereas in fact that just um, occludes the fact that, uh, you know, organising of different types has taken place beforehand. <clears throat> in the case of the Gilets Jaunes, I think you can genuinely talk about a spontaneous movement, although perhaps research on it later will, will qualify that statement. It emerged as a uh, initially uh, a protest against the increase in um, fuel taxes, which is supposedly presented by the Macron government as a response to the ecological, as a form of ecological transition. Uh, to try and, particularly on diesel fuel, uh, to try and uh, encourage people, quote-unquote, to um, use their cars less and to switch from uh, diesel to other forms of perhaps electric cars or whatever. Um, And it emerged essentially on social media. There were a number of other allied concerns that were raised. One was the uh, um, reduction in the speed limit on secondary roads to 80 kilometers an hour. Um, and more diffuse concerns about uh, fiscal injustice. This is in a context, of course, where the Macron government has um, handed over large, uh, large uh, tax breaks to the rich and the super rich. He, for example, um, abolished the ISF, the so-called um, solidarity tax on, on wealth, and uh, so there was this perception that on the one, what he was taking, what, take, what he was giving with one hand to the rich, 
fiscally. He was taking away from um, ordinary people, if you like, with these uh, extra fuel taxes. What's interesting about the movement, of course, is that it represents the politicization and mobilization of social layers in France who uh, have previously not been politically active, either, of course, in, in the form that it's currently taken, mobilizations, demonstrations, blockages, but even in the form of uh, electoral participation. A lot of the people involved in the Gilets Jaunes movement are people who are abstentionists at elections or have become abstentionists at elections. Um, secondly, the social layers involved are, um, I would say it's a, a plebeian movement in the sense that uh, it involves working class people according to a Marxist or a radical definition, but it also involves um, the low middle class, the so-called uh, petit moyen. Uh, so uh, small simple, business owners and that sort of thing? Small business owners, artisans, even uh, lower level um, managers, people with who are just about getting by economically or doing slightly better than that but who have low cultural capital. So it's people generally who haven't been to university and so on. So quite different from the, from the, uh, the, the social composition of the Nuit Debout movement, for example, where you have economic precarity, but high cultural capital. Um, and third uh, distinctive element is that it's been very strong and taken off in particularly uh, semi-rural areas in uh, smaller town, provincial towns, even in villages across France. Again, social layers that are not, have not been politically affected by the big social movements of the last few years um, and who are not quite, quite the vanguard, if you like, traditionally of uh, social movements in France. Um, and these, 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 so these, these people who, who got involved in the Gilets Jaunes movement um, have organized blockades uh, and uh, forms of action in places which also are not traditionally associated with, uh, with social movements. So, for example, parking lots, uh, the, so, you know, the famous non-places of Marc Auger, uh, roundabouts and other kinds of um, uh, points of transit, points of circulation, if you like, uh, rather than either points of production or uh, big symbolic demonstrations in in the center of, of big towns. So it's quite a, it's a very distinctive movement in that sense. It is self-organized. It doesn't have a, any structure, uh, official structure. It has some people who are presented as its spokespeople, um, but they are highly contested themselves uh, by many of the Gilets Jaunes who say that, you know, they, they don't recognize them as spokespeople of the Gilets Jaunes. Uh, and then, in fact, you know, the various attempts by the government to try and engage those spokespeople in some kind of negotiation have uh, failed so far because of because of this rejections kind of uh, attachment to direct democracy and to refusal of delegation or uh, representation by the movement. Just regarding the latter point, I mean, presumably, you know, as you say, these are not people who've been politically active uh, in recent years. Um, and presumably that horizontalism doesn't stem from, you know, sort of anarchist convictions or anything like that. Where do you think it does come from? I think it stems from a very deep and uh, rejection of, of the forms of representation that characterize the Fifth Republic um, and the liberal democracy more generally. But the Fifth Republic is a particularly um, 
obscene form, if you like, of liberal democracy. You can go into that later, if you like. Um, and there's, an, there's been an accumulation over the last few decades, but particularly in the last, in the last period, of a disgust and rejection at the notion of uh, a political caste that uh, seems to only look out for itself, that doesn't represent uh, as it should its electors or the people as, as a whole, that uh, you know is, is overpaid, uh, that doesn't understand what it is to do a real day's work and so on and so forth. And initially, of course, the Macron uh, movement, which many of these people voted for, uh, was seen as a break with that political caste, if you like, because it was, um, uh, you know, presented itself at least as uh, opening up to civil society, of being a break from the traditional uh, structures of left and right, of uh, French politics, of being a startup political party, and so on. Uh, but uh, there's there's a disillusionment, of course, with with en marche and with Macron more generally. So I think the democratism is partly that. It's partly this disgust with these forms of delegation and representation that uh, people feel have um, have served them very uh, uh, badly. It's also a rejection of any kind of recuperation of the movement. Uh, so as we'll discuss later, no doubt, the, the movement is politically very uh, diverse and contradictory, and all the political parties uh, of the opposition from far right through to far left would would like to the, the movement to see themselves see them as as in some sense the legitimate representatives of it of it but this uh this is obviously rejected by vast sections of the movement because of its internal diversity and contradictions and the third aspect i suppose of the democratism is that uh there is in france you know a strong tradition that goes back um at least to the charter of amiens uh with the foundation of the cgt of this notion that social movements should be autonomous uh, of political parties and uh, that this autonomy has to be respected and so on. And in a sense, surprisingly, paradoxically, because this is not a movement that grows out of that kind of um, labor movement dynamic, uh, it's a similar kind of thing. Uh, it's a similar kind of instinct, uh, a refusal to be represented and for your representatives to be thereby co-opted and integrated into the political system. So right, it's not. It doesn't come from a uh, a thorough, rigorous uh, critique of representation and representationalism uh, from an anarchist or other direction. Uh, it comes stems more from disgust and anger at the results of representation as people see it uh, before their own eyes. In media reporting, there seems to have been a lot of confusion about how to situate the movement politically. So um, the fact of, as you say, the, the protest being initially centred on a fuel tax and uh, indeed a carbon tax, the prevalence of, of people from small towns and rural areas seems to have led to some people, including on the left, to dismiss it as a right-wing populist movement. However, the, the developing demands seem to point in a left-wing direction, although as you say, there, there does seem to be this sort of generalised disdain for po politicians and the political class. And, it, you know, your description brings to mind the Five Star Movement in Italy, particularly, and, and their so-called um, vaffanculo protests, you know, the, the, the fuck you days. Um, what is your perception of, of their demands and, and their political orientations to the extent that it can be succinctly described? I mean, I think it's important to, re to remind ourselves that there is no... Uh, because there's no structure, there is no kind of official 
set of demands that have been voted on or so on. There, there is demands that have been transmitted to the media, uh, which we can talk about, uh, but they don't, I mean, they don't necessarily represent all the versions of the movement or, you know, the weight that people would put on some, some of them would be different according to uh, who you're talking to, what, what place you're talking from and so on. Um, yes, I think obviously initially there was a distrust of the movement and an attempt to try and um, uh, paint it as a Pujadist movement. So in France there was a, a movement in the in the 50s of uh, artisans and small businessmen against uh against taxes and against the supposed, um, you know, hypertrophied state and so on, led by uh, Pujad, uh, which um, which was clearly a right-wing and reactionary movement. And then more recently um, in France, there's there was under Hollande's government the movement of the Bonnet Rouge, the red, uh, the red hats or red caps, uh, which was started off in, in Brittany in the north of uh, North uh, uh, west of France, and um, which uh, which was a generally interclassist movement. It rep- it had both bosses and uh, and and some uh, trade unionists involved, um, and was uh, more clearly a, a a reactionary movement than the Gilets Jaunes movement. Um, so there there was there was this um, notion, and then the fact that uh, some of the peop- leading people involved. Um, have an association with the far right um, was also flagged as a, as a warning sign. And of course, the fact that the elements of the, the hard right and the far right um, welcomed it were also um, cited. And, and, you know, the, the ideologues of the, the hard right and the far right in the initial stages tried to present this as a uh, uprising of the, you know, the white working class or white uh, laboring uh, masses against the Parisian elites, the bobos, uh, as they call them, the uh, the politically correct, the the left, the the state, uh, uh, and so on. Um, the dynamic of the movement is has been such that those elements which are still present um, have been largely uh, marginalised for the moment by a much more expansive and uh, generalised. Um, but in cohate, set of demands about justice, fiscal justice to start with, um, because it has to be remembered that the tax system in France is an extremely aggressive, regressive tax system with a lot of indirect taxes like VAT that obviously have the biggest impact on, on the poorer sections of society. But also social justice, the uh, cost of living presented not just in terms of taxes or of uh, the cost of things, but also in terms of uh, the relative, uh, you know, inequalities and the relative gaps op- that have opened up between the rich uh, and the rest of the population. Uh, so social justice um, and democratic demands uh, of different types. So the left, uh, parts of the left, uh, parts of the union movements uh, were initially very suspicious of the movement for those reasons. And you still hear those kinds of criticisms more, more, it has to be said nowadays, from um, the liberal left and the elements of the establishment who are trying to uh, delegitimate it and saying it's just a bunch of um, rednecks, uh, racist rednecks who um, who are egotistically trying to defend their lifestyle of you know um, semi-detached houses with. Um, with dogs, with dogs and gardens, um, and 
you know, uh, they're basically uh, completely a reactionary mass. So that, that was initially the, the kind of notion that was quite prevalent. Uh, but as I say, both the forms of action which they've taken, which are very radical, and increasingly the, the range of demands that have been put forward, uh, and it has to be said, the response of the state, uh, which is a crucial radicalizing factor in all this, is, uh, have led those criticisms to be, as I say, increasingly uh, marginalized on the left uh, and uh, more and more repeated by people who are basically defending the system. And the the CGT union, they've called for a 48-hour strike. Is that correct? No, uh, oh. they haven't called for... <laughs> they've called for action disassociated from the demonstration on Saturday. They've called for day of action on the 14th. Um, and they signed... They, um, they were involved in a, uh, a meeting uh, with all the other trade union confederations... Uh, which produced a really poor uh, statement, basically calling for dialogue and peace and so on, really uh, appallingly um, weak and you know, meaningless statement. Uh, so they really fluffed their opportunity to, to connect with the, um, the Gilets Jaunes movement. It's a big, I think, tragic and potentially dangerous mistake that they've made there. Uh, the Solidaire Union uh, Federation, which is the most radical, has uh, has taken a different position, and uh, various sections of the CGT are also taking much more radical uh, positions in solidarity. Um, so we may see on Saturday some um, expression of that, and maybe the week uh, next week um, uh, some expression of that in forms of perhaps strike action um, or other forms less than strike action. But the CGT at a, at a um, top level has, uh, yeah, has really failed its test, I have to say, on this question. And what about um, La France Insoumise, the, the left populist party led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon? How have they sought to relate to the protest? Well, on the one hand, they're in a good position because many of the demands that are being made are demands that, uh, that they, they have been campaigning on for a long time. Um, in a sense, this is simply the confirmation, this whole movement is the confirmation of Jean-Luc Mélenchon's analysis that, you know, the what he called dégagiste, uh, kick them outist uh, mood that uh, that he followed very closely in, um, in Latin America to start with and then spread across Southern Europe uh, was finally arriving in France. Um, and he characterizes the movement as uh, very congruent with his notion that he's developed for a long time now of uh, what he calls a citizen's revolution. So a, a revolution that would take pacific forms, would not take the form of a insurrectionary general strike or seizure of the state, would be a, a parliamentary road, if you like, but which would lead to a big um, rupture institutionally, the convocation of a constituent assembly, which would develop a, 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 far, a far more democratic uh, republic for six, uh, constitution for six republic. Uh, on the, so that's one aspect that, that that seems to be reflected in um, many of the democratic demands. Obviously, he he and La France Insoumise have been um, pushing on the question of uh, of uh, inequality and social demands, and even to be honest, the more reactionary or problematic aspects of the Gilets Jaunes movement are quite congruent with La France Insoumise. So, for example, the positions on Immigration, which are which are uh, deeply problematic with the France Assumis, bring them much closer, if you like, to the Gilets Jaunes movement. So, in a way, the Gilets Jaunes movement 
could well be seen as a as a as a confirmation of their analysis and their strategy up to now. Problem is, of course, that it's a movement has uh, arisen completely outside of their control and even more of their social base, uh, which remains largely urban and um, and uh, located in the traditional sectors of the left in France. And of course, many of the Gilets Jaunes also see La France Insoumise and Mélenchon as part of the problem, not part of the solution, in the sense that they are part of a political system that that, it, that is rejected. So they uh, have been, uh, I think, positioned themselves relatively intelligently in relation to the movement in the, in the sense of trying to act as amplificators of certain aspects of the demands that they uh, agree with, uh, without, on the other hand, seeming to recuperate or place themselves in, you know, as if they are simply uh, recuperating the movement for their own, on their own behalf. They have squarely put the blame, of course, on, on Macron and said that called for him to, to, to either concede or to cede his place, uh, to call at least for a, a, a dissolution of the assembly and a new set of legislative elections. And, uh, you know, have uh, tried to put forward a, uh, or have put forward a motion of censure with the other uh, left oppositional movements in the, in the National Assembly. So um, I think they've played their cards reasonably well. Uh, but like I say, the, the big problem for them is that this social base is not the traditional social base and they don't have the kinds of mediations that uh, that would allow them to, uh, you know, really present themselves as if they were the party of the Gilets Jaunes. Um, regarding Macron, so The Guardian had a pretty amusing editorial recently in which they suggested that uh, Macron needs to, as they put it, regain his popular touch. Of course, Macron became president by winning just 24% of the vote in the first round of the election in 2017, um, and then effectively winning the second round by not being Marine Le Pen. I think to most people on the, on the left, uh, it was pretty evident that Macron was neither popular nor any kind of solution to uh, the rise of the French far right. How is Macron and the political centre in, in France responding to the protests and to the, the obvious unpopularity of Macron's project? Well, what's interesting, I think, about Macron is that, you know, of course, he was when he won, won he was presented by, you know, The Guardian and the Liberal Left and uh, all sorts of uh, um, idiots as, uh, you know, the reincarnation of uh, John F. Kennedy, of Obama, and so on, and he was seen by the remnants of the third way as a, as a kind of you know desperate last attempt to show that the the third way was uh, was still relevant. Um, yeah, on on social media, there's uh, doing the rounds is a, a a screenshot of that Guardian editorial that said Macron, what's not to like? Yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, this was a generalized European phenomenon. You know, in Italy, Renzi and so on, um, thought that uh, they could desperately surf off, off this phenomenon. So, he, you know, he came, on, he came in with all this enthusiasm from a sector of the uh, media and political establishment. And, you know, he had real advantages in the sense that both the right and the left in France and the, and the far right were in complete disarray um, and unable really to, uh, to uh, respond. Uh, and it really did seem, as, you know, Perry Anderson wrote in his, uh, his piece just after Macron's victory that, you know, perhaps this was the proof that the centre-right, uh, centre centre-left establishment could hold and could recompose itself. Um, but very quickly, I think what emerged was um, 
and I think this is this is a bit mysterious to me. I have to say is that he burnt his boats very quickly, because on the one hand he had theorized the whole notion that he was going to be a so-called Jupiterian president. He was going to be you know above the fray. He was going to represent some sort of vertical authority and so on, not like the normal president Hollande, who presented himself as kind of an ordinary ordinary bloke. Mm. Um, would would this be sort of trying to play off uh, the memory of De Gaulle? Exactly, exactly. Um, a kind of bonsai De Gaulle. Um, that was the image, um, and of course, he was also his other distinctive um, his other distinctive uh, feature was that he was going to, unlike all previous presidents, he was going to push through his reforms, uh, you know, vigorously. They weren't going to back down. Uh, unlike previous presidents, they were just going to, you know push push them through as 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 fast and as um, effectively as they could and uh, he was going to act like a manager of a, of a startup as he put it you know a, a really dynamic you know um, cool but you know firm and determined uh, manager um, and almost immediately um, he started burning his boats partly because of the content of his reforms, which increasingly appeared not as neither left nor right, or both left and right, uh, but as more and more clearly uh, neo, clearly neoliberal reforms that were uh, favoring the rich and the super rich, um, and um, uh, you know the way he behaved towards the protests on the labor law, uh, the you know the idea that he was going to be somehow more liberal on a questions of repression or questions of uh, you know so-called societal questions uh, disappeared uh, fairly rapidly. But also he his his id, if you like, which is an which is an extremely you know he comes from a, a very privileged background. He had a very privileged you know elite trajectory. He of course uh, was uh, at Rothschilds for a while. But, you know, he he wasn't able to control his id. So he made lots of statements that were just, frankly, outrageously arrogant and contemptuous and rude about ordinary people. Um, and combined with the content of his reforms, that consolidated a strong unpopularity that began to, to grow within the first six months of his presidency. But what's also interesting, I think, about the protests is that he and his party, which has to be remembered, consists partly of remnants of the Socialist Party and some uh, people that they recruited from the right. But in its vast mass, consists of people who don't have, <coughs> who didn't have any political, <coughs> professional political experience before, and come from upper middle class backgrounds. Um, they are totally and utterly out of their depth with this movement. They don't understand it. And they are, frankly, they're shocked. They're shocked by its depth, by its radicalism of its actions. And they're also outraged, you know, they're outraged and shocked at the hatred, the social hatred that they have become the target of. Dédéric uh, Lordon, in his piece that we just put on the Verso blog, expresses it quite well, I think. They and the the political elite, that, the media elite that support them, are they can't get their heads around why people would want to string them up, um, why people are so furious with them. And they don't understand that it's one thing to do, to put through reforms that people don't like or that people are actively opposed to. But if you do that in such a, um, in such a contemptuous and elitist kind of manner 
you 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 add an effective charge, if you like, to the opposition that you're facing, which is which can be explosive, which is what we're witnessing now. So they're out of the depth. They're panicking. They don't know quite what to do. They originally said they weren't going to back down. Then <laughs> then they partially backed down <coughs> over the fuel tax, saying they were going to suspend it. Then they said, okay, we're not spending it. Actually, that means that we're uh, abolishing it at least for 2019. Um, then they've now said, of course, we're not going to back down on anything else. Most importantly, we're not going to back down on raising minimum wage. Um, but at the same time, they're hystericizing the demonstration tomorrow, talking about how people are going to get killed, um, that there's going to be, um, you know, uh, fire and blood on the streets of Paris um, and calling uh, rather pathetically for all the opposition parties to call for calm and uh, to dissuade people from going on the demonstration. Um, so they're really like headless chickens. They have no idea what to do. Regarding Macron's reform agenda, I was thinking about the parallel of, of somebody like uh, Margaret Thatcher, who um, obviously is very different to Macron in, in many ways, but, but came to power uh, wanting to pursue a radical trans- transformation of, of British society and to impose a new economic settlement. But in the case of Thatcher, you know, it's, it's kind of clear that she was able to draw upon, um, you know, sort of populist discontent with the paternalist and, and bureaucratic character of the post-war settlement and, and upon the sort of um, anti-conformist desires set in train by the by the popular movements of the of the 60s. But it, it's, it, it never seemed clear to me what um, what Macron was able to to draw upon and, and what he was able to offer to, you know, sort of key sections of the population that he would need to take with him in order to um, implement his agenda. Yeah, absolutely. I think that they don't really have any um, clear social analysis, if you like. I mean, Bruno Amable and Stefano Parambarini uh, wrote a book, which uh, Verso is translating, called The Illusion of the Bourgeois Bloc, which is about this long-term illusion since the early 80s, and that Macron is the kind of apotheosis of uh, that somehow the centre-right and centre-left can consolidate a, a bourgeois pro-European, pro-neoliberal bloc, and, and push, forward, push through the kinds of reforms that are so oh so necessary for the French economy to to catch up with the world and you know uh, break with its uh, break with its uh, social democratic past or whatever, um, and that this is an illusion because there's no social basis for it. The electoral basis for this kind of movement has always been extremely weak, uh, and it's no, not particularly stronger now. You know, uh, forty years after the idea was floated initially um, than it was then. Moreover, you know. This is a country which has witnessed some of the major rebellions against neoliberalism of the recent period, starting with 1995, going through to the rejection of the European Constitutional Treaty in 2005, and so on. Um, So, you know, this is a country that's been rocked by uh, many and in some cases extremely successful rebellions against neoliberal reform. So the idea that somehow... On, a, on the basis of extremely small, slender electoral base and extremely, it has to be said, limited class basis. So we're really talking about very small section, quite coherent, but small section of French society that fanatically supports uh, Macron. Um, that somehow just through energy and uh, conviction, they're going to be able to take the rest of the country by storm, as it were, is, uh, is just crazy. Uh, and in fact, I don't think they really understand the nature of the Thatcher phenomenon because they they really think it's just a question of tactics. 
you know, take, taking on, for example, a symbolically strong section of workers, the miners in uh, Thatcher's case, and uh, Macron was hoping the railway workers in uh, in his case, and that, you know, through this symbolic victory, the basically people would be so shocked and stunned that you would be able to push through these reforms. They don't understand that, you know, Thatcherism was much more than that, and that even in terms of the tactical level, you know, they were much cleverer about taking on different sections of the labor movement, uh, beating them, and then biding their time, take on the next section of the labor movement, and so on, the so-called salami tactics. Uh, and as you say, it's not based either on this mass rejection of uh, social egalitarianism. They don't, for example, have a uh, similar phenomenon to the uh, mass sale of council houses that Thatcher had to um, uh, consolidate a working class Tory vote, if you like. So, yeah, they think it's just about tactics and about, you know, some spectacular some spectacular successes, which then allow them to, you know, just uh, ram things through. Hmm. Um, so just a sort of punitive shock and awe strategy. Exactly, exactly. I said the distinction is that they understand some of the tactics, but they have no strategy. They have no idea about, you know, that to the extent that politics is about balance and relationship of forces, that you have to have you have to have real strategies for dealing with situations where you face serious opposition and splitting that opposition and turning it against itself and, you know, uh, being able to both, you know, be hard cop and soft cop and so on. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.